0: Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne.
1: Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne. And with me today is the lovely Karina Bourne. Karina, how are you?
2: I'm good, thanks, Tom. How are you going?
1: I'm doing well. Good. Doing well. Now I brought you on today to talk about your experiences in, in the early childhood profession. Now, can you tell us a little bit, bit about the profession, your current position, and what led you into, into those roles?
2: So currently I am a consultant on a mental health initiative for education, so from birth to 18, and I support learning communities and learning about mental health and building their mental health capacity for themselves, for children, and for families in their and their community okay yeah how long have you been doing that a couple of years now two and a half three years
1: and before that
2: so I've worked in early childhood pretty much my whole career starting when I was about I think 16 and cleaning and childcare center and then started doing relief work and from there you know worked part-time and did some nannying and then Back into early childhood, took some time off to have a child, did my university degree. so I have a Bachelor in education specialising in early childhood education and care. And yeah, went to work in long daycare, I've worked in long daycare, I've worked in family daycare as a as a coordinator and as an educator. I've done some training and assessing in early childhood qualifications. So a bit of all sorts of things really, but it's yeah, it's it's a great profession to be able to do lots of different things and, and to really explore what it is that you want to do.
1: Okay what was the initial spark to head down that pathway?
2: Oh it just happened really I think I've always had a natural affinity with children and I think that's you can see that in lots of my family there's the you know dad's always coached and things and it just yeah it really just happened but then it became a really conscious choice to be part of that sector and, and to work within it and to advocate for early childhood as a whole. and You haven't really deviated
1: out of the profession from since you first started working have you?
2: Not really I think I went and had a break and worked for six months in a copy centre and I hated every second of it and then went back but I think it was when I was kind of in between nannying and working in like the learning communities and I think it really showed me that working isolated wasn't what I wanted to do or was it right for me at that time and working as a part of a team was really important so that's why I went into kind of more of a centre-based care.
1: Okay of all the roles that you've been in in the profession what's the greatest challenge you've faced across the whole profession?
2: Oh, I think there's lots of different challenges in different ways in any role, I think. I think in some roles there's a lot of issues. So if you're thinking about long daycare and and the problems that we're facing around staff shortages and some of those issues is really a systemic issue that's quite hard to challenge and that can be really challenging, I think, The fact that people don't see early childhood as a profession and don't value it as much as what should happen, in my opinion. I think that if we think about my qualifications, I have the same qualification as a teacher working in a primary or secondary school, Mm. but I've chosen to work in early childhood and I've chosen a lot to work with infants and toddlers because that's my passion. But it's not seen as that. It's seen as... Not as valued as teaching as a whole, so that I think that's a real big challenge in itself.
1: Glorified mm. babysitting—that's what I've heard it mm. called by some people. Mm.
2: Had yeah, not my favourite term, <laughs> as you can tell. Oh. We have lots of lengthy conversations around
1: that. Yeah, have, <laughs> what what is what is needed, in your opinion, to shift shift the belief? that the profession is actually a profession, that it's not just a child-minding service?
2: I think there's lots of things, and I think it's the way we advocate for ourselves. So I consider myself an early child professional. I use the word, e- word educator or teacher, and I'm not afraid to use that, using terms such as children, referring to the sector as a profession because it's it really needs to be seen as that. And I think if we're advocating that for ourselves, then that is turning a little bit i think i think over covid a lot of people have seen the value of early childhood a lot more and how much is involved in educating and teaching and caring for children i think there's still a long way to go but i think particularly parents have seen it as as a really needed space and how it is it is integral into to our communities and i think that's that's turned a little bit but i think um we need to have higher standards of of qualifications we need to have a lot more of that being advocated for but i think that comes down to the fact that it's known as a very low paying role it's mm. a very it's not seen as something that it, it, like i I didn't go into early childhood thinking I was going to earn lots of money. Let's say that way. It's it's something you do for a passion and a, and a love for, but that's not enough. Love isn't enough to be able to commit to and to be able to do the job really effectively. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of people leave the sector because they can't afford to be in that role anymore or they've got multiple jobs I've heard stories of people leaving their roles as early childhood educators and these are diploma qualified people Mm -hmm. are leaving because they can go and clean houses and get more money yeah so like that's a real issue in itself that we want to have highly qualified highly knowledgeable highly dedicated staff but we're not paying them that we're not paying them what they need to be paid to be able to do the role effectively.
1: Yeah, there's 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 quite a few issues we can discuss around mm. that. Um, we'll try and take them one step at a time because I get uh, there's a few issues there I'd like to bring up. But bringing it back to the safety perspective, mm. one of the great I don't know one of the interesting points that came out of COVID in the last two years was the need mm. for. Early childhood education for first responders, for the people who Mm. keep society going while everyone else is quarantined, for the people who keep us all safe and have to and they can't work from home. Mm. But one of the issues, again, we saw with COVID was. The problems with a a highly casual workforce, and this came across a few industries, Mm. it was in security Mm. with the hotels, it was with aged care with the workers, but also the early childhood profession where people are working two or three jobs Mm. because they can only get a certain amount of days or hours here. They still have bills to pay. As you said, it's Mm. not a traditionally high paid profession mm. and so you have people who are literally moving from one job site to another job site to another job site and if any sort of pandemic is a breakout and they're unaware of infectious state at the time, you have the potential to basically infect a large amount of people who then literally go home and spread it to their families. and I think we also saw a large amount of staff, just basically unavailable. And so we had a great demand, but not much volume of staffing.
2: Oh, I think there are a lot of things that happened that, that really challenged. And I think part of it is the fact that that funding was cut for early childhood organisations. So family daycare, long daycare, the funding was cut. Mm. And so some people could get JobKeeper and that could supplement some of those funding cuts. But for some people, for example, if you were a family daycare educator, you were only able to charge a certain amount. So basically you were doing all of the same hours of work, but only getting half of the the income. Mm. And for a lot of people, that's not viable. They can't survive on that. Well, you know, families weren't attending, so they weren't, having the income that they needed but they still had families that they were trying to support and it was a really hard time for a lot of people and I think a lot of early childhood organizations you know really struggled in, in that respect you know there was a lot of people who had their hours cut who because there weren't enough children attending to be yeah. able to, to pay enough of everybody so you know it was, it, there were a lot of things that happened there and I think yeah like the highly casualized workforce there are a lot of people in early childhood who are casual employees and might be working across different learning communities or be working part-time because that's what suits their families and and you know that was a struggle mm. I think in itself for some people that couldn't be guaranteed work so I went out to different places and, and found work in other ways and haven't returned because they've discovered that Actually, it's a lot easier. There's a lot more response. Um, there's a lot less responsibility working in other places than there are, and they get paid more. Yeah, you know, so they haven't returned to early childhood because it's it's not viable for them anymore.
1: Yeah, is that is that, is that one of the, the the issues for the industry that it's almost seen as a revolving door type industry that we get people in, we get them qualified, they get experience, and then they leave.
2: Oh, I think it depends, and I think it depends on why people have entered the sector in itself in the first place. I think there is a bit of that happens for different reasons. It might be family things that are going on. It might be that they're moving to different places or just, you know, it it really does depend. Or what happens is that people enjoy working on the floor and they're really great at what they do. So they get promoted into other management Mm -hmm. positions or other positions where they're not directly working with children. So I think there's a lot of different factors that come into play around, around a lot of that.
1: Okay. Mm. Look, as for changing people's perceptions about the prof- the profession, I think you'd find there's overwhelming public support for better educated, better trained, early childhood educators, mm. so long as they don't have to pay the bill. Mm. And that that seems yeah. to be the crux of the matter to me in Australia is we we want those higher qualifications, we want our children to be better educated, we want them safer at those places where we leave our children, but no one seems willing to pay mm. the bill. And whether it's through higher taxes or whether it's through greater contributions from families, no one seems willing to 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 pay for the the quality. That's actually required they would like
2: yeah and it's a hard one because you know and this is I think it's been going on for so long that it it doesn't yeah there's so many things that happen because at the other on the other flip side of that is families can only afford what they can afford That's right. so you know families can't afford often to pay more than what they're already paying so you know, where does that money come from? And I know in lots of different countries, there's lots of different funding models. So, you know, there's a lot for us to look at that could work. And I know that this government in particular are really um, advocating for and putting in lots of great policies around affordable early childhood education and care. And I think that's great. One of my questions is probably, you know, why? why is early childhood kind of in that social category rather than the education category? Why, why are we seen as kind of more of a social issue and not an educational issue? Because when we're talking about early childhood education and care, we're talking about that it's educating children. It's, it's a teaching profession. It's mm. something that needs to be seen as that rather than, and it's really important for it to be seen as the opportunity for families to have care so they can go to work. And that's a really important part of what we do. But it's also about the fact that we're educating those small minds, mm. you know, we're planting those seeds, what we do in those first five years has implications for lifetimes. And you can't have children, you know, doing really well in primary and secondary school and not having a really solid base in early childhood, because that's where a lot of those concepts and pre-mathematics concepts and, you know, all that STEM stuff, you know, that happens from a really early age from children and Playing water play and, and things, and we know that that's that leads on to concepts of you know floating and sinking, and then we learn about gravity and like there's all of those things that happen that have to start somewhere, and, and they start in those
1: good good different um, rooms.
2: Sorry, and you know that this is my passion, Tom. So you can't expect me not to get excited about that.
1: that's <laughs> right. We will move past the the whole culture wars so regarding the profession, and we'll move on to. Some more health-related topics. Mm. In your current role, you said you look after the mental health of...
2: Yeah, so building capacity of mental health knowledge and understanding for educators Mm -hmm. so they can really look at the mental health and well-being of themselves, of the families they support, and also the children they're teaching. Because again, if we can put some really solid foundations of mental health knowledge and understanding in those early years, so you know, if we think about it, a little baby who's just started care and has got separation anxiety and how what strategies we're putting in for them to, to support that and thinking about how we're teaching regulation because we know that regulation needs co-regulation to start with putting some of those things into effect so that children have a really solid toolbox when they are going into Mm -hmm. the school setting, but also for their lives. So if we can teach children really early on about mental health well-being and that it's really valued and as important as physical health, then they're going to grow up knowing that. And and we're going to reduce some of the stigma around mental health issues and conditions that exist in, in our societies.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Now, you deal with early childhood educators, day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. You look after a number of centres across Australia. Can you give an example, uh, non specific, of some of the issues that are affecting your clients at this time?
2: Yeah, so there's there's the main thing is staff shortages at the moment. There's a lot of staff shortages that are happening across the board. So, you know, that people aren't available or people are sick or, yeah, just whatever's happening. And so directors are having to spend more time on the floor, which is great because I think that's a really important part of that role to be hands-on and, and to really know what's happening for educators, but it's meaning that some of those other things aren't being done. So there's kind of that pressure of I need to be on the floor, but I've also got all this documentation and I've got all these regulatory requirements that need to happen. So, you know, finding that that balance, I think that's a really big thing that's happening. I think, you know there's there's it's it's really challenging for a lot of learning communities out there.
1: Are we seeing greater demands on educators? these days than they have had in the past
2: I think it's always been building I think there are huge responsibilities for educators and and learning communities I think there needs to be there needs to be a lot of regulation there needs to be all that the stuff that's in place how that's dealt with And, and the extra things I think are really putting a lot of pressure on the workloads of teachers educators directors Team members. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, in your experience, what are some of the hazards and risks involved in the profession?
2: Oh, lots. I think <laughs> if we think about like mental health, I mean, you know, it, it's a very, can be a really high stress profession that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, if you think about the multitude of decisions that have to be made in a day, the supervision requirements, it's an emotionally, physically, cognitively draining job some days and you would know that on days where you know (laughs) I get decision fatigue I would get decision fatigue because I just cannot make another decision because you've been doing that all day and, and really kind of understanding what's happening and you are always on always on the ball you're always having to be there for everybody else and sometimes it's really hard to fill your own tank so there's that kind of stuff that goes on I think there's still a little bit of bullying that can happen in in some learning communities. So, you know, it's thinking about those psychosocial hazards of how do we create a really mentally healthy learning community is really something that um, is more being advocated for. I think that that's it's still a challenge though i think there's still some challenges because there's still some very old school thinking of that mental health is not as important as physical health but there's also all those physical risks you know the everyday kind of things of you know your working environment where there's things all over the floor and you know trip hazards and and back injuries are huge so i know that i have a terrible back and i can guarantee that that's from working in early childhood for so long and lifting and and all that stuff even though you're lifting all the right ways, it t- still takes a, a strain on on what you're doing, and yeah, so there's that kind of thing. It does take a really high toll on your body. So, learning about how to keep your body well and look after it, and live to the right way, and do all that sort of thing is really huge. Okay, there's probably lots more, but those are the ones that come to mind. What, how, how, how,
1: how, how are, how are hazards and risks? and safety in general generally managed in an early childhood setting
2: so early childhood in itself is highly regulated we have a very comprehensive act that guides us all the time and there are many policies and procedures that are in place to support our work and i think that's really important and needs to happen think that there definitely are sometimes policies and procedures that are written by people who aren't living those policies and procedures. So I think that's something that's quite a challenge in the fact that, you know, the people who are living those policies and procedures need to have a say in writing those policies and procedures. I don't think that they can't always be written in the head office and sent down and that's how it's done but it's written by people who don't do that work every day. And But I think it's also a profession that evolves and adjusts and, and changes all the time. So, you know, there's always new theories and, and things coming through. So how we integrate some of those best practices into our role is, is really important. But there's lots of channels for that to happen. Okay. So
1: is there any systematic processes in the places you've worked in for identifying hazards in the workplace?
2: Yeah, well, we have really so any incident that happens in the learning, in a learning community is documented. Mm. So whether that's children, whether that's educators, all of those are documented and sometimes they are reportable, depending on what's happened. And there are, you know, risk assessments that happen. For everything, pretty much, we have daily risks checks, environment checks. We do, and I'm thinking, you know, back to when I was running family daycare, all the risk assessments that we had for everything. So we, I had a risk assessment for going in the car. I had a risk assessment for every park that we went to. I had a risk assessment for our environment. You know, there's all of the usual, you know, floor um, evacuation plans and what do we do if there's a flood? What do we do if there's a fire? What do we do if Somebody comes to the door and is not safe. What do we do in those kind of situations? So there's there's documentation around all of those that's done kind of initially but should be looked back on and, and regularly updated and adjusted for anything that's going on and happening and new things that happen. They, Does that answer your question? Kind
1: of. <laughs> are they regularly gone and reviewed mm. or are we so busy there's no chance we we can do that. We've we've already done twelve hour a day. Do we do we make time for those reviews? Well, we have to.
2: I think that's really important. And I think anyone who values their work and their their teams will be doing that on a regular basis. But it's it's a bit more challenging when you do have you know it's not done always in your setting and sometimes it's a blanket thing that's done for a lot of places and and so you don't have a lot of say in in adjusting those and, and making that work but that's where you just do you do you do your own and you know what's happening and you know your children because I think that's another thing that we we don't promote enough is the fact that it's really important for children to learn What feels safe and what doesn't, because without that, knowing what they're capable of and being able to challenge themselves and take those risks, they don't learn what that feels like. So, you know, if you've got a two year old who's challenging themselves on some equipment and you're there and you're supporting them and and they can do that and they know what feels safe and they can go, okay, I feel safe doing this. And then they can go. Okay, I don't feel safe doing this. But you're giving them that option of kind of going. Okay, well, this is where I feel safe. This is okay. Mm-hmm. This is doesn't. So I'm going to kind of go back a step. If you can kind of really talk children through that and, and identify that and, and work around that and work with children in that, and they know that feeling. That feeling's going to stay with them if it keep continues. If they're continuing to have that conversation. So what happens at the other end is you don't have a teenager, for example, going in a car with someone who's drunk driving. Mm. They're able to understand what feels safe for them and they're confident in saying, this feels safe, I can do this, or this doesn't feel safe, I'm not going to do this. Because they've learned that at a really young age.
1: Okay. You talked about lots of risk assessment, lots of procedures mm. that are put in place and you talked about they're not actually site-specific, they're general and then you, you try and adapt them. Mm. Is there a danger that, the industry, the profession has grown up with layer upon layer upon layer of procedures and that they effectively become ineffective because we've just got to complete this form, just do yeah. this rather than actually thinking about it.
2: For sure, I think there's definitely a, part of, a bit of that because there is so much paperwork that sometimes, you know, there are those workarounds that happen. I think that's where if we have people who are qualified and competent and well experienced and have all the right tools to do their job really well there's going to be less of that Mm. and I think that's you know when we are thinking about you know on the day and there's all the stuff going on and there's not enough staff to help to be able to do the role properly because there's lunch breaks or there's people changing nappies and like which is all the stuff that happens but if we think about some of those challenges if we've got enough staff, if we've got all the support, if our team members are really well looked after and well and looking after themselves and know their boundaries and know what what they need to do their job really efficiently and effectively and, and well, you're going to have less of that. In my opinion, this is all in my opinion.
1: Mm,
2: mm. Mm.
1: Okay. Now, in the last couple of years, there, I know, there's been mm. some incidents. In the profession that have made media and social media headlines, some of which have led to some pretty unfortunate consequences. Well, well that's all we'll say about that bit. Mm. But the thing for most parents, and and for even myself, who's not involved in the profession, is we we look back at this, you know, the outcome of that, and we go, how on earth mm. could those outcomes have? occurred because Mm -hmm. we look and go it's a fairly simple process that would have to be followed in this situation what's your thoughts about it do you do you you feel like the ones that we that, that have made media attention do you think that's a matter of procedures not being followed or do you think it's something else that we can't see because we don't know the full details about what's actually happened
2: Yeah, I think it's a case of the later rather than the earlier. Like, I think we don't know because we weren't there, so it's really hard. And I think if we're thinking about in any workplace that things happen, that we need to kind of go back and and identify all of the things. Like, it's probably not one thing that's happened that's led to that occurrence occurring. It's probably a whole lot of stuff that hasn't happened or is not done in a way that's effective that has caused that to happen. I think, you know, any good health and safety practice looks at the whole picture rather than just that Mm. one part and I think there are times where things don't happen but they need to but yeah it's hard to know because I wasn't there but if we think about early childhood educators it's a we have children's lives in our hands Mm. And it's something that needs to be taken really, really seriously. And that's why part of advocating for our profession is making sure that that we have really good systems and regulations that are effective and work in the way that they should rather than the way that people think they should.
1: Mm, appropriate.
2: Appropriate.
1: Mm, appropriate, yeah. Okay. Now, I always think I always use the thing that uh, you, 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 you people in your profession help create the future. but that's just
2: me well I'd agree with you there (laughs) well because I mean you know if you think about you know doctors and lawyers and you know they've all started somewhere and, and sometimes I know I've had experiences where children have shown a real passion for something at a really young age and have gone to explore that in a really amazing way and done really amazing things and I think that's a really um a special thing where i i get to see that in hindsight and go of course of course that person's doing amazing things because they were doing amazing things there but but every child has that a p- potential mm. and it's about seeing that potential really nurturing those potentials but when you have you know you one person amongst 25 children mm. you know that's a real challenge how can we do all of that but if yeah it's a tricky yeah it's a really tricky one mm. yeah
1: All right. You mentioned earlier that the profession is governed fairly tightly by some legislation. Hmm. Besides work health and safety, what other legislation is the profession governed by?
2: Oh, well, there are the National Quality Standards Mm -hmm. that are really important for us to follow and really look into. And there's also the Education and Care Act. So there's, you know, both of those things support each other really beautiful, the regulations and, and the the standards. But, you know, is there enough understanding of, you know, those for every person? Maybe not, but, it, yeah, that's.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the other the other piece of legislation which covers all industries around mm. in Australia is health and safety legislation. Mm. Yeah. From your experience and in your opinion, do staff working in the profession have a solid understanding of their legal obligations under the Work Health and Safety Act and regulations?
2: That's a really tricky one to answer, in the fact that the Health and Safety Act is inherent in the early childhood regulations. And that's, you know, it's underlying and underpinning mm-hmm. that. Do people look at the health and safety legislations outside of that? Probably not, but I think it's a really important part of what is happening. I think some organisations are doing it really well, but some organisations probably need to look at it in different ways and embrace it a bit more, I think. But, yeah, it really depends on each organisation and and what what that is, I think I know, Previous, like up until probably the role I'm in now – I probably wouldn't have looked at the health and safety regulations and legislation in the acts because mm. I was looking, focused on the early childhood regulations and the early childhood stuff. So that's was where I focused my attention and knowing that there are such stringent regulations and responsibilities and legislation written didn't feel like I needed to. But there are all of those overarching, like the psychosocial thing, aspects, that probably need to be more highlighted and integrated into our everyday practice that, that would be, I think everyone would benefit from that.
1: Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Early childhood profession is one of the few industries, service industries where, where there are in place, strict ratios for number of staff per number of Mm -hmm. children couple of dou- double barrel ones here we'll go with it is it is it is it good for keeping the, pe- the, ki- the children safe and is it good for keeping educators safe as well? well start with those
2: ones well I think there needs to be ratios in place and I think they're really important I think if we are looking at how those ratios are sometimes practiced or you know, if we think about there's a term called under the roof ratio where they take over every, under everyone who's under that roof at that one point and they can, can can kind of go, OK, well, we've got enough staff for all of the children and that works. But what happens is, you know, if you're in an infant toddler room and your ratio is one to four, then that means there should be one educator f- for all of those children. So if there is someone, to, for example, changing a nappy or something, we still need to maintain those ratios because You can't be focused on that one child changing a nappy and I use that like toileting or anything like that and still have, you know, and what happens is one person's doing that and you've got then the one to seven with the rest of the children and, and that's a risk factor in itself. So thinking about, you know, how people implement those ratios is really important and how people are supported within their teams to make sure that they are, looking at that whole picture. So sometimes you can have a one to four ratio or a one to eight if you're working with toddlers, for example, you know, the two to three year olds. And think about, you know, what's really needed in though that room with those children. Mm. I think we need to have those over overarching ratios, but sometimes that's not enough. Mm. And sometimes we need more children more people working with those children in that space simply because of those children and what their requirements are Are
1: mm. uh, the ratio is just a, a a minimum standard yeah
2: yeah so, so you can have more than that
1: yeah, yeah, yeah so you can
2: definitely have more than what but you can't have less
1: yeah yeah i was just thinking when you're talking about it sounded like flexibility that the danger is that then we go flexible the other way and we have less <laughs> because these are an extraordinary good mob of
2: children. No No matter how wonderful those children are, you still need to meet the minimum requirements of those ratios.
1: Good, good. All right, not much further to go. Recently, there's been some changes in the regulations, safety Mm -hmm. regulations, which make employers responsible for managing psychosocial risks in the same way they manage physical risks. So... Two questions. The first one is, what are some of the psychosocial risks you've seen in your profession? We'll start with that one.
2: If we're thinking about sometimes that burnout, you know, though the workloads can sometimes be huge and there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of pressure coming from multiple places and how that can have a really adverse you know, effect on people's working ability and things. And that can be, we see that a lot, a lot of burnout. And we, you know, and I know that I've worked in learning communities that there has been a lot of bullying happening and a lot of unfair treatment of staff and and team members. and, And that needs to stop. I think. I think, you know, we have a responsibility. And I think, you know, when we went to that conference in October, there was one quote that really impacted me a lot was you know everybody deserves to go home feeling safe and healthy and I think you know there's been workplaces that I've been in where I would have anxiety about going to work because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on and, and that was not okay and I think that can happen in any workplace but it should not happen in any workplace yeah do you think
1: just with that Now, all all parents want their children to to leave the care of others in a good state of mind without Mm. any harm having come to them. Do you think perhaps parents sometimes expect things that are unachievable in the way that we've set up the profession?
2: Oh, I think, well, I mean, that's where I will advocate for it being seen as a profession rather than an industry because yes it is partly that we are providing a service if you are an educator providing you know an education learning community and and people are enrolling their children into your environment and and things but the pressure sometimes for parents is is quite huge and the fact that you know parents have certain ways that they want their children to be raised and that's great like that is really fantastic and I think that's where building that family partnerships is so important and the fact that we work with families as much as we work with children Mm -hmm. we support families as much as we support children but it can be really hard when a parent for example You know, and I see this and hear this all the time and I've been on both sides and I know how that works. But, you know, for example, a parent wants their child not to sleep, yet that child is falling asleep at the lunch table because they're Mm. so exhausted and you're having to wake them up after half an hour. But that child then is absolutely mortified for the rest of the day and and can't cope with what's happening. And and if children are tired, they're not going to be able to learn. If a child is is overtired, then they're not going to be able to learn all, all the stuff that can be learned in that environment. So finding that middle ground and, and creating those win-win situations is, is sometimes really challenging. And I think that's where it's really important for people to find those right fits for them. So for parents to really kind of look at a lot of learning education models and, and think about, okay, well is this going to suit me? Am I better off having a nanny to come into my home or, you know, utilizing family daycare or going to a long daycare or looking at Montessori or, you know, because there's a whole range of, of way, you know, places that people can go to and find. However, in saying that there's not always the openings. There's not always the spaces. Mm. And we're looking at that. Like people are on waiting lists for two years to get mm. to a learning community that they need to go to, to be able to go to work. So on any way you see it, sometimes there's challenges. But I think we need to embrace, you know, more more diversity in the education model in early childhood. You know, I think nannies are way underutilised in Australia because, you know, for some families that would be actually the perfect way. If they have three children under five and one in school, you know, if nannies were more well-funded and, and things, that would be a perfect Way of of you know being able to access what they need and more affordable than having three children go to full time care and and after school care and, and you know the benefits for that would be seen financially and for their home lives and those children's lives. So I think we need to really embrace all of those different models of of care and and thinking and care and education and think about what works for families, but also what's best for children yeah
1: all right back to the psychosocial oh sorry yeah I went off track
2: a little bit there
1: that was the second part of the question is now that managers and owners have this responsibility to manage psychosocial risks within the workplace the same as physical risks how hard in a care setting early childhood care setting is it going to be for them to manage psychosocial risks
2: I don't think it's unmanageable at all. I think it's definitely manageable. And there needs to be space for those, for example, directors of learning communities to have the time to engage and to upskill and to learn more about it and to embrace that because currently they're so time poor that adding something else can be a real challenge. So I think there needs to be that time and space to be able to to delve into it and to really engage with it in order for it to be really effective and not just another thing that they need to do on top of everything else that they're trying to do.
1: Okay. On that, just uh, before we go, a couple of little quick questions.
2: Mm. Every child,
1: early childhood educator, mm. as part of the minimum qualification, which I still believe is a certain three mm. early childhood, yeah. has to do first aid. Mm-hmm do you think that's appropriate
2: i think everybody should do first aid i think everybody should know how to respond in an emergency situation definitely in education i think you know having making sure that everyone looking after other people's humans knowing what to do in an emergency is hugely important
1: okay the the follow-up then is with a new emphasis on psychosocial risks Should it therefore be mandatory that they also have to learn mental health first aid? I
2: think for some roles, I think it would be great to be able to engage with that. I think, you know, if you think about directors, people, you know, family daycare educators, it should really be something that people could look into. I think it depends on the situation. I think what would be really beneficial is trauma-informed practice and thinking about how to deal with how children and adults and anyone behaves when there is that underlying trauma. So I suppose mental health first aid would support that um, quite a bit. If you think about, is it sometimes that first line of call for for a family or each other in a, in a, in a situation? I don't know enough about probably the mental first aid qualifications to be able to really identify whether it needs to be mandatory or not, but I think it would be really beneficial for some roles.
1: Yeah. I, I look to me for the for the uh, senior educators, perhaps. Um but again we get back to qualifications matching mm. pay and mm. career and time. Time and mm. it, it it would seem a little problematic. Mm. Yeah. All right. Finally, if someone wants to know more about the services that your work provide for educators. We'll have a link at the end of the the podcast information that you can do that. Otherwise, thanks very much for your time today, Karina. It's been a pleasure as always.
2: Thanks for having me on, Tom.
1: And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. You again soon. You again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne.